Hi, I'm Lauren from Cincinnati, and I have a cold. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of Welcome to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is how this week's guest, ESPN anchor Kenny Maine, told the world he was going to write a book. Hi, I'm Kenny Maine, author, and I'm going to write a book now. And it's going to be really good. This is my daughters over here. You guys help do the illustrations? Yes. Riley? I'm going to It's going to be a family project then. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to take on Harry Potter. And unlike the Harry Potter thing, we're not going to be selling at midnight. Keep it down. We're not going to be selling at midnight. We're going to do it like at 10 or 11 in the morning. We care a little more about families than Harry Potter. See you then. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guest on the program uh, is a longtime employee of ESPN, the Extra Sports Network. Worldwide leader in sports. The worldwide leader in sports. Uh, Kenny Maine's new book is called An Incomplete and Inaccurate History of Sport. It also has a subtitle that goes on and on and on, but starts with with random thoughts from childhood and random thoughts from other times other than childhood. No, from times other than childhood. I didn't say other twice, did I? Did I repeat the word other? That'd be redundant. No. With random thoughts from childhood. Childhood and with random thoughts from times other, other than, childhood. than childhood. See, what happened was Crown is the publisher. Sorry, I don't match up to your style guide there, <laughs> man. Crown's the publisher, and they say, you know, you really need a subtitle. And I'm like, why do we need a subtitle? Isn't the title ridiculous and long enough? And they said people go into stores, and they need to, you know, something has to catch their eye. I wanted the picture. Of, Wouldn't that be the title, though? Yeah, title. More but, so than the subtitle? Uh, you know, but then again, they convinced me in a way because, uh, what's a good example? Um, uh, Ghost Wars uh-huh. has a subtitle, which, of course, I'm forgetting now. Uh, but something like what led to 9-11 or everything before 9-11 or something. So it clues you in a bit. But I said the ti- the point of the title was to mock the fact I even have a book. I thought mock the fact I'm sort of writing a sports book. I mean, it, it, maybe it's not for everybody, but... So I, I turned in a 482-word subtitle. I said, here's your subtitle. <laughs> the hope being that it just wouldn't run it, but instead they ran the whole thing on the inside, the back cover. It's, all, it's on a sidewalk somewhere probably. Yeah, so it, the, book is, um, the book is a combination of... Uh, it's a must-read. Yes, it's a combination of Stephen King with a little bit of Michael Crichton thrown <laughs> in. And that, no. a fair amount of uh, trying to think of a best-selling nonfiction book, Guinness Book of World Records. No, well, I've been, I've heard in this. I don't compare myself. He's legendary career, but Dave Barry, and I, I grew up reading him. Actually, he was syndicated or is syndicated, and I'd read him out in Seattle. But what it is is a book that was written out of necessity because I thought I was going to leave ESPN. So one night I was like, I better start doing something in case I really leave, which was imminent. It seemed. Turned out I stayed at ESPN and completed the book and sold it and. 
you know, here we are in this apartment in Koreatown. It's a book that um, on its face is uh, uh, sort of a, a, a comic encyclopedia of sport, but ends up being more about your personal relationship with sports. Indeed. Um, you, you, uh, I forgot the, I didn't stay with the premise of the book is the reason yeah. why it turned out that I really was going to do, let's say a hundred sports or fifth or whatever the number was and do a kind of a fake you know, faux history. Like hockey follows that model and some other sports do. But then football, I played football, played in college, so why wouldn't I just talk about Keith Simons breaking my leg in sixth grade? And So you ended up focusing on the more important sports like uh, uh, variant forms of bowling and leaving out a few of the lesser sports such as baseball. No, baseball made it. Oh, is there baseball? Yes, I, I read must the book. have forgot What's about What's wrong with you? I read the book. Well, it's in the B's. I forgot it's about early. B well, you, for baseball. It's because you read it so long ago. Yeah, exactly. Well, I read it so many times. Baseball. It, it's all just a beautiful song that plays in my head. <laughs> I like baseball. I like basketball. I like hockey. I like I, I like a lot of things, but you can you only love... You clearly like tackle football yeah. a lot more. You can only love so many things. I mean, there's only so much time in the day. Like, There's so many forms of media now, too. Everybody says, oh, did you see such and such? I'm like, I didn't know it existed. Like They'll mention a TV show. I've never heard of it, and it's everyone's watching it. So I think maybe I just stick to what I know and what I love and football, tackle football, as I like to call it, and horse racing I'm big on, too. You, you, played, uh, you played football throughout your childhood and played uh, college football and, in fact, even at one point signed a professional football contract after graduating from college. M- mockery of the league, I know. When you were in high school and college, did you have the idea that you could be a professional athlete? I had the ambition. I don't know. Idea sounds like it's almost a sure thing, I think. But I was skinny and, you know, big hands and feet and kind of filled out. I probably weighed 170 maybe in in high school, 6'2", so I was real thin. But I could throw, but I was not like a superstar. I was, you know, honorable mention in the league or, you know, our team was a third-place team. And so I wasn't scouted by hardly anyone except the real small colleges. No offense to them, but I, I thought I was good enough to play Division One A. So I walked on at Washington, but they, they treat it was like a caste system. You know, we had to, the, the walk-ons had to dress in a different area. You didn't really even feel part of the team. You were just bodies to fill out drills. You write about the fact that you, you in fact, played on the sidelines without a ball. In, that, I mean, that's as low as it gets. <laughs> like, usually the scrub guys, you know, say there's a drill going on. Anybody who's watched a football practice, you know, the, the starter's doing his thing. The second string guy's ready to go. Third guy might be tossing, you know, but I'm number six or seven or whatever number I was. And sometimes they just just put your hands out and pretend that you're handing off to. And so I got pretty disillusioned and wondered, you know, Washington would be great, you know, the great education up there and all. But I want to play, so I walked off after walking on, and I called the junior college, community college, we call them up there, and said, "Hey, will you still have me?" Because they were already starting their camp. He, this guy had really wanted me to go to junior college, and he said, "Sure, come on over." You know, I'm not going to promise you you're starting now because we got this other kid who came, but come and fight for the position. And so I went to Wenatchee Valley Community College, 1977 and 78, and played two seasons there. As it went on and I filled out and I started actually, it wasn't half bad. I, I got bigger and stronger and, and, you know, was, I guess, even called an athlete for a short time in my life. But it's just funny because I really am not that good at other sports. I can play softball and I can throw and hit fly outs. Sure, and, you can play a little celebrity softball. Yeah, that, now that and kind then. of thing. But I'm, I have no jumper in basketball. It takes me a thousand shots before I get any feel for shooting a basketball and um, I mean, what else do people play? I've never played hockey. I can't skate very well, but I can throw things. And even to this day, at, at my at my what's it, what's it, advanced age, um, that's my one you know thing I cling to. Like, there's a golfer named Ernie Els, and we were doing a silly story with him once, and I said, I bet you I can throw it from here. 
And I was describing how once in a while when we when we play our games, we throw the ball once per nine, just screwing around. I think I might have just been making that up for the sake of the story. And he says, let me see. And we were like 100 yards out, and I actually hit the green. I didn't throw a golf ball 100 yards in the air. I probably threw it 70, and it took a great bounce. And to this day, Ernie L's just he's just flabbergasted that a man could throw <laughs> a golf ball. You know, ruined my arm, of course, for about a week. But, um, yeah, I definitely wanted to play professional football. But I started realizing, especially because at UNLV, I didn't start. I was a second stringer, and I broke my leg. Um, I was thinking Canada and the USFL, the new league, was coming up. So I thought I was that good because I saw other guys who were getting to go, and I was like, you know, I can throw with that guy. So why not? if him if if he can do it, why can't I? The next year after I played my senior year, Sam King, the starter, was offered to go to the Seahawks, but he turned it down to go to Canada. So my coach called and said, Tony Knapp called and said, hey, the second stringer wasn't that far back of the first stringer. Why don't you look at him? And they gave me a contract. So I signed a really not high-paying NFL deal. No bonus. If I remember correctly, $30,000 with possible uh, increase up to $45,000. Yeah, I think we italicized forty five, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so, But I failed the physical on the first day of official training camp. Still wanted to play. I didn't have it out of my blood. I got a TV job immediately at Good Looking 11, KSD Washington, KSDW. Uh, but, but then I finally just, you know, I'm 24 years old now. Nobody's going to hire a guy, you know, who's marginal in his college career, who has a bad ankle, and he works at a TV station. You know, I'm out. I'm done. What was it like when you uh, – because uh, here's the thing. You know, I went through my entire childhood through college without ever trying at anything, basically, literally. And uh, and so I can't imagine having tried as hard as you have to try in order to uh, play college football um, and, and, and cared enough to keep working out after you, you know, had signed your NFL contract and then failed a physical. Um, what was it like for you to, to like, know, oh, I have to give that up now? It, it was sad, seriously. Like, cause when it's in your blood, whatever's in your blood, for me it was football and writing. Like, those are the two, only two things in my life I think I've ever been able to do very well is throw things and write things. And I'm terrible mechanically. I'm bad at math. Probably don't have very good spatial reasoning. Like, you know, I could do, I, I have no other ability. So I really would like if, if there could be a job where you throw things still on the page. But, um, yeah, no, it, emotionally, yes, definitely you're bummed out. Like, you know, that was your dream. And, but you got to, you know, you got to move on. You got to deal with, you know, what's next. And I was trying to move on in my little TV career. And, but I, I'd say it makes you defiant a little bit. That for, at least in my case, because the same thing happened to me in TV too, where not getting the opportunities I wanted in TV. I didn't give up on it. I just kept, you know, the, like the way I got to ESPN. I just didn't believe him. I was like, you guys are you're wrong, and I'm going to prove you wrong. So I continued to try. In the hole. Welcome to San Luis Ray Downs Golf Club in Bonzel, California. I'm with the head pro, Greg Milligan. What's the wimpiest thing you've ever seen on your golf course? Uh, guys that play from the red tees. You've never seen that, have you? Yeah, I have seen that. Sir, Wait, the tee box is up here. That's the ladies' area. The red one is ladies. The next one is ladies who are pretty good. But all the other players are hitting from up here. If you can live with yourself, go ahead and hit from there. Ah! There's a story that you write in the book about um, uh, you, you had played you had played with Randall Cunningham, who, of course, uh, for those who don't know, was in and it went on to become an NFL great star, um, the ultimate weapon in Sports Illustrated cover. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well known for his uh, running as well as his throwing. 
Um, do you think I, I simplified that enough for non That was good. It sounded like fans. you've been following the Philadelphia Eagles and his career in yeah. Minnesota for years. Absolutely. I know I know everything there is to know about yeah. Mr. Randall Cunningham. Number 12. He's at, good at uh, running at and Philadelphia. throwing, and he was really good in John Madden Football 95 for the sake yeah. of Genesis. Just and amazingly he's tall, good. 6'4", skinny. Um, so the there's punter. a, there's a story in the book about you, you at the time working in, uh, uh, local television, basically throwing everything you had into, uh, a spec piece for ESPN. I don't know if spec piece is something that actually exists in yeah. television journalism. <laughs> I wonder, but. I wonder myself. Yes. Well, what happened was, let's see if I can give the condensed version. I finally got on the air and I wanted to be a serious journalist. I wanted to be Bob Simon or Alan Pizzi and, you know, end up as Thomas Friedman for the New York Times writing lofty editorials. And I like, I wish Thomas Friedman were president, by the way. So you thought, if I'm going to become Thomas Friedman, the way to do it, local television. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to start somewhere. You know, I wanted to be doing news, news stories and eventually documentaries and, and be the guy that covers the next war somewhere. So what happened was that we had a station that was only on five days a week. And we used to joke, if there's news on the weekends, it's news to us. That could be the motto on the side of a bus. But then they added a weekend. They had a couple of 10 o'clock shows on the weekend. So they said, you played football, you're the sports guy. It's like, okay, I'll be the weekend sports guy now. So I did news three days and sports two days. And after a couple of years of doing that, it went fairly well, I thought. Um, I sent a tape to ESPN off the Joe Montana to John Taylor Super Bowl. The 49ers won. It was 1989. And they brought me back for an interview. And it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe that ESPN, I almost on a lark. I'll see if ESPN thinks I'm any good. And sure enough, they think I'm good enough to interview. So they fly me back. I failed miserably on, uh, not so much on the tryout, but on the, the talking to the bosses. They rotated me through five guys. One guy said, what's your five-year plan? I'm like, I hope I sell a movie script and I'm just like playing with my dog on the beach. <laughs> and, that he, and that doesn't, in my mind, he's asking, my, what's my ambition? That's it. I was being honest. <laughs> But he, I think he thought I had a lack of work ethic or something, which isn't true at all. I think I work hard. Another guy started asking about the Cubs' middle relief. I'm like, yeah, they'll come in after the starters, uh, <laughs> right before the setup guy, and then yeah, I'll bring in a closer and get it done, win some games. So I tried to fake my way through. It wasn't really that question, but clearly I was not the sports maven that they wanted. I was this guy that writes pretty well and does okay on TV, but they wanted these hardcore sports guys, and I wasn't one. And I'm still not, actually. Um, and I went back. And about four months later, maybe six months later, I quit that job on one day's notice because I was standing up to the man. They took away the weekend solo thing I had, and they had me share it with another guy. And it just wasn't working. I like the guy. I'm still friends with him, Rod Simon. He's in Minneapolis. Uh, but it just it wasn't him, and it wasn't me. It was just like it was just weird. Why are we trying to do something? Why don't you just let him do the weekdays and I'll do the weekends, and everybody can be happy. And instead, they said, uh, they actually said, you can't do that. You, you can get in trouble. It was like trouble. I still, I still going to quit. What more trouble? You know, can I, you know, not let me take my stapler with me. I mean, what, what's going to happen if I quit? So I quit, and really felt like a big man. Uh, and then I realized I owed a lot of money to Sears, and I had a practice wife and um, uh, you know, Honda bill, and you know, just regular life living. So in a very short amount of time, I lost my job, wife, dog, and house. Tough, tough days for me. We call it my blue period now. <laughs> so I decided ESPN contact me again. You know, they're, they're like keeping it fresh. Like I still have a shot with them. I'm going to fly to Philadelphia. I know Randall. He'll remember me from college. We, you know, we've seen each other over the years. And I told the PR guy I'm coming. And I thought I'd get this killer 
the definitive Randall Cunningham story because of my access to him. I fly to Philly with my last dollars, essentially. I think I borrowed 500 from my sister to make the trip and pay for the camera and made up this little story on Randall. But I didn't get the exclusive thing that I wanted because he was too busy taking off in his limo to go to some event. And he said, sorry, can't I, I just can't stay longer. And so I had this generic, it wasn't even that well written and total disaster. ESPN never used it. Who knows if they even looked at it. But then they, they had me do the Goodwill Games of 1990. And this went on for four years. I was working for MCI in sales while I freelanced and sent spec stories like you described, except these times they were paying for it. They'd say, go interview Ken Griffey. And I'd not only do the interview, but I'd write a short story that, hey, you could have had this full two-minute story had you put me on your staff. You actually print in in the book uh, a letter that you wrote in 1994, if I remember correctly, uh, to ESPN after a few years of uh, working as a stringer. Can you just describe what the letter I th- was? I think I have it memorized. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if I have the old address memorized, 25818, I think it was. My wife, Laura, girlfriend at the time typed it up for me. Uh, It was to John Walsh, who's still there. He's one of the senior guys. I said, Dear John, please check the appropriate box as I'm trying to decide on my future or make a career decision, something in that neighborhood. First box said, Stand by the mailbox. Contract's on the way. Second one said, Keep up the good work. Keep doing what you're doing, which was the freelance work. And the third one said, We'll hire you about the time ESPN 5 hits the air. (laughs) And the joke's on them now because I think we're up to the Ocho, like they had in Dodgeball. But they checked the middle box. I sent it back, and and at that really I was I was trying in a clever I thought way to say guys like you know are we ever going to do this like this is ridiculous I I'm doing good work for you I kill myself you know pitching story ideas I see what you got on TV I think I'm as good as those guys no offense to the guys who were there I just mean I think I can do it and I don't know if that really woke him up but a month later I was hired it's the sound of young America my guest is ESPN anchor now author Kenny Maine we'll have more with Kenny in just a minute. The Maximum Fun Drive is entering its closing days. If you've been sitting on your hands waiting to support the shows you love, now's the time to stand up, remove your hands from under your butt, and use them to type MaximumFun.org into your browser, then click on Donate. There are cool thank you gifts, of course, but the real reason to give is that you're directly supporting the shows and the folks behind them. All year, we give you everything we have for free, and two weeks a year, I come on the air here and bother you to step up and help pay for it. Visit MaximumFun.org now and click on Donate. And for once, the warmth welling up inside you won't be a symptom of your persistent dyspepsia. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Kenny Mayne, is the author of An Incomplete and Inaccurate History of Sport. He's been an anchor and contributor on ESPN for many years. As someone who you just you just described aspiring to be the next Thomas Friedman, how did you feel about doing sports journalism? You're obviously a guy who's extremely passionate about sports, but it's also a very particular kind of it's a very particular kind of journalism with it's very much its own world. Um, I think I'm still more passionate about political news and world events than I am sports. I love football, I love horse racing, and I like and follow other things, but. I think I let myself and my mother down by going to sports and not following through on the more serious pursuit of real journalism. Do you do you feel like there's a distinction between sports journalism and re, quote unquote real journalism? Oh, yeah. What's the distinction? The, what we're covering doesn't matter as much as the other <laughs> stuff. That's the number one distinction. There are some very very good writers who cover sports. You know, the writing is, but I'm just talking about the seriousness of the subject. And there are some very serious and poignant things in sports. So. I mean, I think a lot of people get me wrong until they think, oh, yeah, he does those silly mascot stories. Like, that's the 
the, the if guys who don't like me that that'll be their put down but i've done like maybe one mascot score in 14 years for starters but secondly we think the funny stories i try to do are smart stories not silly as i just say silly is kind of a throwaway but um there, there are there are poignant things that happen we just celebrated jackie robinson you know the breakthrough in major league baseball the 60 year anniversary and i think it's great how like communities come together and you know rally behind a team and and all the devotion people put into the excellence they did, like all that, I that I appreciate. But I'm just talking about being so married to the success of your team that, that, that you lead your life through that. That's what I don't do. I think that's the difference. When you when you started at ESPN and in, and particularly when you started as a host on Sports Center, um, was part of the attraction for it uh, of it for you. Uh, the the tone that had been established on the show, the fact that it was. Um, really, at the time, the only news show um, that was anywhere near as as irreverent as it was mm-hmm. and is. Yeah, I mean, I was a fan of it. I would watch Dan Patrick and Bill Patrick and the other Patrick, and uh, Oldman was there a little bit later, and you know all the old guys, Tom, the late Tom Mees, and and even the more serious, like Bob Lee. I love. He's he's a friend, and and he's the straight arrow serious guy, but. Very good writer. He's sharp. You know, he, he really cares about what he's doing. Chris Berman, of course, he's the Godfather, and all all of them. Gail Gardner was there, but they all had a funny way about him. Every one of them all had their own little style, and it was clear they loved sports and they had fun telling about it, and they had fun together and they liked each other. And it was it was this little engine who could kind of thing. It was a small little plant that barely stayed alive was for it, a number of years. Was it intimidating to come into this situation where everyone that had gone before you and was going alongside of you had really strong voices? And I imagine that as soon as you you know stepped onto the screen, you were expected to demonstrate a, a really strong voice yourself. Well, it's funny. I got hired in May 1st of 94. And I, I specifically, I can't, I can't even, I can hear him say it. I can hear the tone. Vince Doria, who I love, my favorite boss there, um, said, you know, don't have any aspirations about SportsCenter. It's going to be ESPN2, you know, use some feature assignments and some short sports updates. So they, they were trying to minimize my expectations from the beginning that not everybody gets to go over and do SportsCenter. It really is a dogfight as to who gets on SportsCenter. They have a 6 o'clock, an 11 o'clock, and a 1 o'clock. And that, what is that? That's six people, you know, maybe seven sometimes on a three-man show. So we have a lot more than seven folks who'd like to do those jobs. Um, so I didn't even think about it, really. I was just happy to be there. I It was almost like, you know, through all the stuff I'd, I'd gone through, at, you know, for, for me causing it, too. Um, what little ego I think I do have, I probably had a little bit like, look at me, guys, back in Seattle, I did get here. You know, there probably was something to that. But then I let go of that pretty quick and started trying to work. And I needed to catch up on that whole thing of, the the day-to-day general sports knowledge that I really didn't have. They hired me without me having that, but I I think I quickly caught up and I got into it and um, knew the sports already and I knew how to be on TV already, so it was just a matter of doing well with my writing. And and once they killed the show that I was on, though, they had to either get rid of us or put us on different things. They put me on a car racing show, RPM Tonight. I didn't know anything about car racing. I mean, I really had to study up for that. And then a couple years later, I finally got, or maybe a year later, I finally got a shot at SportsCenter. But I remember my first sports center. I was as nervous, you know. Th- there was almost a point of, you know, if I just left now, no one would know that I failed. I could just <laughs> leave, drive, get in my car, get in a Honda. I ninety goes all the way across America. I could be back in Seattle, but I stayed. I did it. Larry Beal was he's in San Francisco now. He was my first sports center partner, and he was so he's a really nice man, and he was very good to me that night. Maybe you know, he just did the things that make you 
feel welcome because it's intimidating for somebody in their first time on whatever show, whether it's Sports Center or whatever show you're doing. There are the guys, like you said, that have already been doing it. You're the guy who has never done it, and here you go. Good luck, you know. So, and I, I don't think I totally fell apart, but I wasn't that good. I just kind of got through the show. You know, I was staring at the prompter and saying the words very carefully and talking fast and doing all these dorky things. And you know, over the years, I got more comfortable. And then I just did it where my mantra. I didn't really mean that. Are I you really it. proud of saying mantra just because this is public radio? Yeah, I just thought I'd say it that way. <laughs> and um, then I had a latte. Yeah. No, I don't know why I said. Volvo. I never used the word mantra, but I was trying to come up with something. That was the only word that sprang, and then I made fun of myself for saying it. Was and is care and prepare, like you know, make sure you know what you're doing and do it well, but also don't care as you do it if it fails because then it's looser and it comes off better. If you have no fear, then you know the worst thing can happen and you'll still be okay. Now, when there's a serious story, we all tighten up a little bit, you know, the death story or you know some kind of drug violation or whatever, and something where we got to play it straight. Everybody brings it back, and you know, even the silliest guy is going to handle that one appropriately. But the rest of it's just sports. You can just go out there and let it rip. Legendary is faint praise for Brett Favre when he quarterbacks in the bitter cold of Green Bay. It's then when number four elevates to immortal. Lesser men yield to the same conditions in which Favre thrives. And it's all because whenever he is away from the field, Brett Favre is naked. I'm uh, remembering like second or third hand a quote that I heard attributed to Bob Odenkirk. Um, another comic asked him, uh, Bob Odenkirk, the uh, sketch comedy writer and actor and, and now director. Um, another comic asked him why Saturday Night Live was so inconsistent. And uh, he responded by saying, well, have you ever tried to make Wayne Gretzky funny? And um, you have spent the past uh, the I mean you you cover lots of stuff for ESPN, but your main bread and butter has been doing uh, comic, often fictional uh, field pieces f- for, for football ESPN. in particular. Yeah. Um, and I I wonder w- what is it like for you to uh, be shepherding athletes who are often complicit in these things into the world of comedy? It's case by case, but now that I've done it since 2001 slash 2002 they know what's coming in fact we get pitches agents will call hey you i got you know usually they they don't try to write it they say it'd be funny if my guy did blank you know and they look at it as good publicity for their guy one more thing that shows he has a personality maybe they get an ad deal or whatever i mean so that's kind of flattering that that some people look at me and i'm not trying to brag it up like i'm that big a deal but at this point we now do get these these people chasing us and in the first years it was Okay, I remember a specific example. The first year, I, second story of the season, I think, I called the Philadelphia Eagles. Never, never met these guys before. Said, uh, "Here's the pitch. I want to see if Donovan McNabb and Hugh Douglas will stay after practice and go to the team kitchen and make pudding." And it's just, I don't know why I thought of it, but I just think it's funny that that's a ritual of theirs, and we'll tell them stuff to say and just trust me kind of and the, the guy he said yes but i can only imagine how he had to go to donovan <laughs> and say that guy from espn kenny main wants you to make pudding after practice and he says it'll be funny and somehow they agreed we opened the story with donovan and i standing 50 yards apart throwing a ball back and forth 
probably did that just so I wanted people to see so I could you throw. you could demonstrate, yeah. yeah. And, but the joke was we're conducting an interview from 50 yards and we can't hear each other in the wind. And anyway, I thought it was, and the opening line was, it was a windy day. <laughs> and then we make the pudding and Brian Westbrook, who's thrust opening. Brian Westbrook's a star running back. He was a rookie at the time and he was compelled to stir the pudding as a rookie <laughs> hazing. Uh, another great component of it was I tried to get a hold of Bill Cosby. And his people said he wouldn't be interested in these kind of skits. He doesn't do that. And, by the way, won't be in Philadelphia that way. And for those young listeners, Bill Cosby, famous American comic actor, had a Cosby show on TV. Also, Jell-O Pudding. That was the connection there. He was the spokesperson. Maybe he still is. Um, Bill Cosby, it turns out, is in he's, Now he's the spokesperson for hating rap music. Yeah, he's not a big fan of that. But don't interrupt my flow, please. Um, <laughs> it turns out, I think we were just waiting around during lunchtime or something. And somebody noticed Bill Cosby is in town. He's speaking at such and such high school at noon. And <laughs> me, Tom McCollum, my producer, and this intern jump in a car, race across town. We get him. He knows who I am because he's watched Sports Center. Gives me a couple funny lines. I mean, it was just unbelievable how all this came together that now we got Cosby. They did make the pudding. We did do the throwing. And I still think that was one of the queerest and funniest things we've ever done just because it was so. It was a little bit like a sports center commercial I did once where I was lying on my back with Dikembe Mutombo and staring at cloud shapes. And he's like, Kenny, that cloud looks a bit like George Washington, former president. And it's not a very good Dikembe Mutombo, but he has a raspy voice. It's but, the best Dikembe Mutombo I've ever heard. Well, there's there's a whole series of Kim Il-Zong stories. I wanted to call him <laughs> Kim Il-Bong, which means beautiful flower in Korean. So really, your journalistic career is just a long up stream stories. of flying somewhere to try and get someone to embarrass themselves. No, but see, that's the thing. I don't know if, how much of them you've watched. You can go, this is so um, cliche. Like when people say, check out my website. I've actually said that about the book. Yeah. Because I think we have a funny website. It's Kenny Main has written a book.com. It was formerly Kenny Main, Kenny Main is, writing, is a book. writing. Thanks for noting that. A lot of people missed that one. Yeah, I um, read the book. I did a lot of research, contrary good. to what some people might tell good. me. But There's this main character who's been spe- spreading yeah. lies. Well, the other one is, the, 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 the false impression is that I'm making fun of the guys. The truth is, if anybody, I'm usually the butt of the joke. In fact, if I've done, how many, six times 50, say, you know, whatever, the 300 stories over the years, whatever it is, I think I've really only kind of attack, if you will, or, or say something that could be perceived as cutting you know, three times or something, and, and and it meant in the most humorous way. The one time, um, if you watch Super Bowls, they always do the story of best player never to have won, you know, the Dan Marinos and the Mormons. We decided let's do the worst player who has won a Super Bowl. And we got turned down by like seven guys. And now it's Friday. We thought we had a guy. We're in San Diego for the Super Bowl. It was, uh, uh, who the heck was playing that year? Uh, Carol, no, Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay and Oakland. Tampa won. And... It's it's Thursday at this point. We don't have a story. We have nothing on tape. And my producer like, I thought you were going to do the story about the guy who's the worst player. And we call a guy. He's up in Seattle now. He played for the 49ers. And it all just came together. We flew. He did it. He played along. And his wife told him not to do it, though. He told us that. <laughs> she thought we were making fun of him. And we were to a degree, but with love. You, you mentioned that you wrote this book uh, in a time when you weren't sure whether you were going to re-sign with ESPN. Um, how did you imagine uh, the life of Kenny Maine as a as a non ESPN employee after having worked at ESPN for almost fifteen years? As much as I love ESPN and I'm so happy to be re-signing for two years 
uh, as soon as the contract gets out of the paper jam. There must be a paper <laughs> jam back there at Connecticut, uh, Bristol, Connecticut. Um, very seriously, I'm blessed to be there. Love the people there. Love what I get to do there. But I was not afraid in the least of leaving. Because, not that I'm so great and everybody was going to flood me with offers. Just I was excited about, hey, I can write another book or I can pitch harder for advertising or maybe I can write some advertising. Maybe I can you know, put more time into writing screenplays, which is what I really want to do. But yes, I was slightly afraid because what if it didn't work? You know, I did have a little bit of that fear of what if we go months and months and months and nothing comes in. But fortunately, because... We've done some outside things, and we haven't been wasteful with our money. Um, we, we, I think we could have survived for a good amount of time without really even having another dime of income. I'm not a multimillionaire. I'm not acting but, like I'm so rich. But, but you do own a chain of extremely successful car washes like no, Lenny Dykstra. I don't own anything, no private business. I'm not much of an entrepreneur. That I always wonder, those people who do that, like, what do they have in them that I don't have in me? I just want to make stuff and sell it. And what I make is, you know, the written word, you know, or my little product. But I don't, I don't think I'd be very good in. Let's open up a restaurant, you know. I would. I'd, let's do it. Was that an offer, or did no, I misinterpret that? I was speaking that? in general. No, let's, let's go for it. No, I'm saying that we should. Well, you and me, we've got a, we've obviously got a great rapport. You I think have I'm the, the next Terry line. Gross? I have the opening line. I think line you're to a already Kenny Maine. Okay, go for it. I got more bitches than the Outback got steaks. Yeah, and they got a lot of stakes. And That's somebody's what makes it so. Somebody's got to just take that and ride it somewhere else. Okay, Kenny Maine is uh, not only an ESPN personality and occasional contributor to Dancing with the Stars. He's also the author of Kenny Maine: An Incomplete and Inaccurate History of Sport, with random thoughts from childhood and with random thoughts from times other than childhood. Kenny, thank you so much. My pleasure and honor. Kenny Maine's new book is an incomplete and inaccurate history of sport. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by speaking into microphones with an able assist on this week's program from Nick White in Chicago. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. The Pledge Drive really is reaching its final days, and I hope you will see fit to take the time to visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate to support this show you love so very much. I know you love it, don't you? Please? If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse at MaximumFun.org. And if you visit MaximumFun.org and click on the forums, you can always discuss the shows and lots of other stuff there. We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Metafilter. Metafilter is a community weblog designed to foster discussion among its thousands of members worldwide. Metafilter is online at www.metafilter.com. 